Hi, John Gimigliano here, and I'd like to welcome you back to our Catching Up on Capitol Hill podcast series, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and a tax policy. Well, it's the end of July, and nearly every year that means the same thing. Congress is scrambling to pass legislation before leaving town for the August recess. But this year, that urgency has turned up to 11, as they say, and that's for a few reasons. The obvious reason is that the country is still in the grips of COVID, and another round of federal relief legislation appears to be either necessary or at least inevitable. The second reason for the urgency is that, of course, there's an election less than 100 days away, and members of both the House and the Senate would much prefer to be home campaigning than to be here in Washington negotiating legislation. So with that, today we turn to the status of this next round of COVID relief. Let's call this one COVID-4. And let's especially focus on the legislative proposals the Senate released this week. The Senate put forth a number of separate proposals to discuss today, but in the aggregate, they are being referred to as the Health, Economic Assistance, Liability Protection, and Schools Act, or for short, the HEALS Act. To explore this topic, I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Carol Coolish, formerly a tax counsel in the House, and Jennifer Gray, formerly a tax counsel in the Senate. Okay, let's get started. We've previously talked about the House proposal, the HEROES Act, in a prior episode. That bill was approved by the House all the way back in May. So what we saw from the Senate this week, I guess, could be viewed as the Senate GOP's response to HEROES, although clearly smaller in size and in scope. Now, you might wonder what took so long, but I think it's fair to say that it wasn't always clear there even would be a Senate proposal for another round of relief. So the fact that these proposals were released at all marks some evolution in thinking from the GOP Senate. But HEALS presents a number of interesting aspects to talk about today in terms of both substance and procedure. So that's what we wanted to cover with you today. And let me just start with one thing. And Jennifer, this will be for you. You know, so far we've had CARES, HEROES, and HEALS. And when things like this happen, I often get the same question from people. Who comes up with these names? How do they come up with these names? I mean, you know, these are pretty inspired. Now, they're not always inspired. TCJA perhaps doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but really with the COVID situation, the staffers of Congress have really risen to the occasion with these acronyms. Where did these come from? I always think they come from slap happy, sleep deprived staffers at about 3 a.m. I've spent hours of my life trying to come up with great acronyms when I staffed the Senate and never had any luck. So I think there are just certain staffers, some of which I can name, who just have a knack for coming up with these. It's amazing. You know, I think people wonder, is there some sort of cool software program that runs an algorithm where you put in sort of the keywords and it spits out some kind of acronym? The answer to that is no. This is what, you know, this is one of the great skills that some Capitol Hill staffers have is to produce these bill names. And I would say that Heels continues in the line with the tradition along with Heroes and Cares. Okay, enough about that. Let's talk about what we saw from the Senate specifically this week. Carol, can you just give us some of the tax highlights? I mean, there's a lot in, in this bill. But let's just start with the tax highlights from the Senate bills that we saw yesterday. Go ahead. Let me start by saying we did put out a tax news flash that lists all of the Senate or substantially all of the, the tax provisions in the various bills. But I want, want to just highlight a few just for the sake of being brief. There are additional cash payments, just like there were in the CARES Act, to some individuals meeting certain income requirements. There are proposed enhancements to the employee retention credit. There's a temporary expansion of the Work Opportunity Tax Credit, or WATC. There's a new temporary refundable payroll tax credit of 50% of an employer's expenses for certain expenses of protecting employees. 
And that's stuff like testing for COVID, personal protective equipment, PPE, cleaning supplies, qualified workplace reconfiguration expenses. There's also uniform procedures through 2024 for assessing state and local income taxes on remote and mobile workers who are performing employment duties in multiple states. Those are all in one of the bills. There's another bill that provides a 30% investment credit against equipment costs associated with PPE manufacturing for eligible domestic manufacturers. And then there's a standalone bill that includes a temporary allowance of a full deduction for business meal expenses incurred after enactment and before 2021. And that goes back, at least in the past, that's something that President Trump had been interested in. So again, that's not everything. That's most of the stuff. And that's a high level summary. Thanks, Carol. So I guess we can conclude that it took the Senate a while to ultimately produce something. They weren't idly sitting by. They had lots of ideas and quite a few on the tax side that were produced. And as, as you said, not through a single bill, but a number of different bills that we saw come out of the Senate. So that kind of takes me to my next question, which I toss to you, Jennifer. Why? Why would they produce all these different bills? You know, Heroes was a single bill. Why are we now with the Senate, this process that they used this week to roll out multiple bills in parallel that are more or less designed around the same issue, which is another round of COVID relief? What do you think the strategy is there? I think it's largely focused on intra caucus politics on within the Republican caucus. I think there is some widespread disagreement on what needs to be in this package or honestly, if there needs to be a package at all. I think by having different bills, the leadership has been able to farm out some ownership of the various parts of the bill to various caucus members and sort of deputize them to help provide assistance with selling it within the caucus. We saw a similar dynamic, not with separate bills per se, but with various members of the Senate Finance Committee taking ownership of various areas within tax reform. And I think this might be something similar there. Also, I think it allows various folks within the caucus to pick and choose which parts of the bill they support and which they're maybe not as excited about. So I get that. You're right. There was this series in the buildup, what ultimately became the TCJA, where we had these working groups and different groups were able to produce different pieces of legislation. But I guess the difference to me anyway is less urgency then. I mean, we've taken 30 years to, to do tax reform, whereas here, as we started off by saying, there is a certain urgency here. And this doesn't appear to be a process built for speed. So, Carol, just your thoughts. Where does this go from here now that we've got these disparate bills sitting out there? What's the next step? You know, right now, I think that next step is the talking between the parties and between the House and the Senate to try to figure out where they can reach consensus. And we see there's already some talks going on with Pelosi from the House, Schumer, Democrat from the Senate, meeting with Meadows and Mnuchin from the White House to talk about where they might be able to reach some common ground. But there are big differences between what the House did and what the Senate did. The House passed a bill, which is something that Pelosi will point to, with support of her Democrats. It was mostly a party line vote. The Senate hasn't been able, well, they can't pass a bill without Democratic support. And at this point, it looks like they don't even have support of all the Republicans for their approach going forward. So it's an interesting dynamic. And there's a lot of big differences that are not so much on the tax title, but on non-tax things, like what do they do with the enhanced unemployment benefits? 
The House has taken the approach of continuing the same level of enhanced unemployment benefits. The Senate is proposing cutting them. The House has much more money for state and local governments. In the Senate bill, one big difference is, or the Senate bills, I should say, one of the big differences is that they include limits on business liability, which are not in the House bill. So there's some big differences between the House approach and the Senate approach, and they ultimately need to be reconciled somehow. But it seems to me right now that Pelosi has a pretty strong hand in those negotiations, just given that they passed the bill. She set the bar pretty high in terms of what the dollar amount of the bill, that's a three and a half trillion dollar bill. She's gotten her Democrats behind it. She's established what they all support. They did it early before some of these deadlines that you were mentioning, unemployment, evictions came up. And right now she's going into the negotiations with the posture of, okay, we passed the bill. You need democratic support to pass something. Let's come to some sort of agreement, but it's, it's going to be tough. And as we said, a lot of the issues are non-tax, but I think Pelosi probably perceiving that she has a pretty strong hand in, in the negotiations. I agree with all that, but one of the things I didn't hear you say, and so Jennifer, this is for you. First of all, do you agree with Carol? But one of the things I didn't hear Carol say and what happens next is that the Senate picks up this, you know, gaggle of bills and tries to pass them one by one, right, and to, to get them through the Senate. Is that right? I mean, is that would be the normal process, but do you think that would happen here? I don't think that has ever been the plan to pass these bills. I think the point of these bills was to put out the position of the majority of the Republican caucus. You know, the Senate is not the House. You need at least seven Democrats to support these bills to pass them through because of the various procedural bills, including the filibuster rule we, we talked about a few weeks ago. It can be very slow to move things through the Senate. The House, theoretically, you could write a bill and pass it the same day, the next day, because of the way the rules work in the House or lack of rules in the Senate. One bill could take two weeks, depending on how the members of the two caucuses feel about the bill. And that goes to my point, which was that Pelosi knows, McConnell knows as well, that ultimately in the Senate, in order for anything to pass the Senate, you need to have some Democrats on board. And in order for a bill to become a law, as we all know, ultimately the House, the Senate, and the White House all have to agree on identical legislation. So it's got to get to a point where they negotiate out their differences. But it's clear that there needs to be Democratic support, both in terms of anything passing the Senate, given those Senate rules, and obviously the House has to be able to repass the bill as well. If you think back to CARES, that, if you think about how that played out. That's pretty clear with what you just said, Carol, the way CARES played out. So we didn't have this exact scenario we're talking about here with heels with CARES. All right now, CARES came out of the Senate, but if, if you recall what happened, you know, we knew that there was like a Republican draft, but ultimately we had, when we finally saw CARES in what is now its final form, where it went up for a vote in the Senate, it was by that point a bipartisan bill, right? It had been negotiated between McConnell and Schumer. You know, the tax stuff had been negotiated between Grassley and Wyden, et cetera. The House had kind of weighed in to make sure that its priorities were in there. So by the time we saw it, it was mostly a bipartisan product at that point. And pretty clear if it was going to pass the Senate, it was going to pass the House. That's not what we have here yet, right? So is this just a question for anybody, either one of you? Are we just earlier in the process? Are we back? You know, we still have to grind through all this to get to where CARES ultimately got, where it is a bipartisan product, and then heels will come out of the Senate, and that will be the vehicle. Is that a possibility, or it's just going to take time? Is that it? 
don't think they have a whole lot of time because as you were saying, you not only have the fact that members want to focus on their election, but you also have these external deadlines that are really hitting with the enhanced unemployment expires at the end of this week, certain restrictions on evictions of renters, certain housing, those expired already. So they don't have the luxury of a lot of time, but unfortunately, I think we're just sort of in a different place than we were politically, even COVID issues, than we were back in March, which is when CARES was enacted. Like CARES, if you recall, was the third major COVID bill that was done in a single month. At that point, there was sort of this general consensus among parties, we need to do something, we need to do something fast. There were differences on details of things, but they did enact three major pieces of legislation in really, really fast time. And now there's been time, we see different, you know, we, we, we saw parts of the economy start to reopen. We see the economy sort of closing in some, in some areas. The, the health crisis in some areas is getting worse. In some areas, it's not so bad. We've got elections that are coming up, which, you know, some people, particularly in the Senate, there's people who, there's people with different views on this in the Senate. Republicans, in terms of their, whether they're concerned more about the deficit or whether they're concerned about delivering a pretty robust fiscal response. And there's some Senate Republicans with really tough races. But I think this, with all of that, the dynamic is just a lot more complicated. But going back to, to where I started, because I realize I'm rambling now, they don't have the luxury of a lot of time. So I do suspect that they will come to some sort of conclusion relatively soon, given all these other deadlines floating around them. But unfortunately, I think we're just in a different atmosphere where there's a lot of different views right now for a variety of different reasons. So it's harder to reach that consensus than it was back in March. Well, you know, when we started with this whole emergency response thing, one of the things we, the things that we noted was that emergency legislation just looks different than we're used to seeing. It has these characteristics, which is unusual speed, unusual bipartisanship, and more or less, you know, mostly in disregard for the budgetary effects. But we also noted that for those of us that worked on a lot of emergency legislation, I know I did when I was on the Hill, those things, all of those criteria that make it possible at the front end of these efforts to, to move things quickly, they all start to break down. And we could see all three of them breaking down in COVID-4, right? The bipartisanship, the speed, and the you know the lack of concern for cost. Part of what made CARES go so fast, those are all creating friction now. So, Jennifer, I guess we'll come back to you with one last question then. Wouldn't it just be easier for the Senate then to just go back to heroes? Just say, okay, look, we know that will pass the House. Let's just take heroes and pass that. That's not plausible, right? Tell us why that's not plausible. Well, I think you mentioned the, I think, a big issue on the Republican caucus, which is the deficit. There are a number of Republican senators who are very concerned about the impact of the deficit of the legislation that's already passed. If my memory serves, I believe I saw projections by the CBO of the deficit for this fiscal year have tripled what their projections were a few months ago. So a lot of Republicans very concerned about that. That's a big issue. Also, Carol mentioned it, uh, politics. We're less than 100 days from the election. We have 23 Republicans up, uh, 12 Democrats up. So I think folks are thinking a lot about that. I think at the end of the day, the odds are in favor of a bill landing on Trump's desk at some point in the next few weeks or months. I'll make a bold prediction and say that it will come out somewhere between the one trillion of the Republican Senate bill and the three trillion of the House Democrat bill, uh, that they might find a way to find a middle ground there. That was a courageous prediction, Jennifer. Wasn't it? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 
You're, look, we've all been, we won't surprise anybody out there to know that that's almost certainly the, the, the reality. The question is how close to which end of that continuum will it be? And that will give you an indication of who won. But look, we'll have more on this next week. That's really all we have time for this week. But almost certainly over the next week and probably possibly anyway, weeks, we're going to be watching this play out in real time. So come back next week. We'll see if Jennifer is right or kind of moving in the right direction in terms of where the House and the Senate can get to in terms of negotiating some sort of additional round of COVID relief. But until then, thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you on the next episode.